All right. Okay, we're going to start back up with the question we ended with last time, which was, what, what keeps you from being in discipleship relationships? What keeps you from developing them? What keeps you from discipling people? Um, what's in the way of those? And just as a reminder, we are defining discipleship here, this church, we're not defining it for everybody, but we're defining it here as the intentional process of influencing someone to become more like you in some way or ways that you're more like Christ. So based on the Matthew 10, 25, it's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be imitators of me as, I'm imita- as I am of Christ. And 2 Timothy 2, 2, well, you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So another way of asking this question is what will it take? What does it take to get us to do it? Which is another way of saying what's in the way of keeping us from doing it. Make sense? Okay, good. Discuss those at your table. What keeps us from having those type of relationships with other people, other men, even sometimes our own kids? And then I'll get feedback here in a second. Ready? Go. All right. Those of you who were secretary, I mean scribes. What were some of the answers you came up with? What were some of the answers your table had? for what's in our way from doing this? What keeps us from doing these, these doing these intentional relationships? Time. Okay, time. What does that mean? Not, not prioritizing or, you know, feel like you're full play with work and your kids and your family. Okay. Okay. Right. If we, if we challenge that thinking, what, what is it, what would, so how much time are we, time are we talking? Yeah, we were, as we talked about that, we're like, we have time. Okay. It's just how we're, how we're using time. So I, I'm a, I'm a, obviously, um, I think that's very realistic that we would say I, I lack the time, meaning I don't know where I would fit that into my busy schedule. Um, although I do think the truth is that what we're going to end up coming down to on most of our answers is going to be value. Because, I mean, as men, if we value something, we probably have it in our lives. And so if, if we value it enough, it's probably there. Well, there are plenty of other things that we would do. And so I want to come back to that at the end. I think that's going to kind of, we're going to find a lot of encapsulation in that word valuing something. How much is it worth to us? Let me, let me give you an example of that. Years ago, in a, um, in a counseling session, I had a, woman, I had a couple that, there was a book I used to sometimes recommend, which I never recommend anymore, but <laughs> it, was, it was about the basic needs that allegedly that men have and women have. And in it, uh, men's number one need allegedly, of course, there's no research for this. This, this has all been blown out of the water now, but the men's number one need was sex and the number two need was domestic support. And number three was an attractive spouse, which this was a great book with women. They loved this book. Um, but so, and so they would, but so a woman came in and was like, so in other words, he wants a prostitute who cleans his house. And, and so my brain, your brain probably doesn't do this because you're more normal than I am, but my brain immediately went to, why don't I have a prostitute who cleans my house? Like, if that's what we want, why does no one have that? Like, I don't know a single, even Hugh Hefner marries these girls, right? 
like one at, in strings and sometimes in groups maybe, but it's always one at a, I mean, he's always married to some of them. So it's like, what's the, why don't any of us, if that's what men wanted, if men really wanted a prostitute who cleaned our house, I guarantee you that's what we would have. That would be normative in the world. If that was important enough to us, but that, as it turns out, and the research backs this, that's not what we want. We don't want somebody paid to have sex with us. We want someone who wants to have sex with us. We want someone who wants to want us, who, whatever. Those are the things we really, that's the desire that's being met there, not, you know, just something or someone to have sex with. And so we now know that. But at the time, that's what struck me is, well, if I, I mean, if that's what we wanted, it's what we would have. If we wanted it badly enough, it's what we have. I mean, all of us, ha- we all own things that it is unreasonable that we own them. Whether it's, uh, you know, a, a truck or a boat or a guns or whatever. We somehow find the time to make the money or the time to get this thing into our lives, right? Maybe many of these things into our lives. So if we value it enough, we find a way to make it happen. And so, yeah, I, I agree. But I think time is, but sometimes I wonder if time isn't, isn't just the easiest go-to for some of us. Like, well, I don't have time. But what we mean is something more, maybe, more, maybe deeper than that, maybe more emotional than that, maybe more fear-based than that. And busyness is our go-to. I think it's legit. I'm not, I'm not minimizing it. I think it's legit. Um, but to say we don't have time, if I say, well, I well, what do you have scheduled then? And if you go, man, my week's busy. Okay, how about, how about next week? How about next month? So could, you, could, you, could we calendar discipleship meetings in August right now for you? So you probably could. You probably, your, your calendar probably is not book solid in August. And then when you get to August, it would be booked, and then you would have time, right? So there's, there's a way to make it happen. Okay, what else? What are some of the other answers we give? Okay, commitment. Again, what, so define commitment for me. I think we all know with time, but what does commitment mean? Let me deli- I'm going to delineate for our conversation, especially as men. And I'm going to take two, the, that, I'm going to turn it to two answers. One is desire, and, and one is commitment. I'm going to take those and make them two separate things. Because um, this, was, this was a great conversation. I, ha- I asked a handful of men um, to do some research on, you know, why, why we struggle to have enough people dedicated to working with our kids. You know, we need 270 people um, to be dedicated at any given moment to be working with our kids it takes 84 people a week. Um, but we kind of consistently, we have 220, 225 people committed to working with the kids, which is a lot given the size of our church. It's huge. Um, given how many people are here on a Sunday morning, again, that's, I'm not minimizing that. It just isn't enough. So our church has grown almost four times in five or six years and the number, so when we went to, to, it's doubled, let's do this, this will be easier. It's doubled since we went to two services, actually a little more than doubled since we went to two services. At the day we went to two services, we had 221 or 222 volunteers to work with kids. We've doubled in size, and we now have 220 or 221 people volunteering to work with our kids. So as we doubled in size, the number of people working is still the same. And I was like, guys, so I got four great systems thinkers who I know now, I don't think any more here, but probably because they're doing stuff, but um, Paul McKenzie and um, Ken Lackner and uh, Cody Wilhite and Grant Seyfried. And I said, you guys are all systems thinkers. I want you to engage with this as a systems problem. W- what's going on here? So um, one of the questions that, that, man, I've derailed my train of thought. Where was I going with that? 
were separating commitment. Thank you very much. Perfect. And so someone was listening to me. It's never me, but someone is. Good. Um, the, uh, um, and that was, that was, so one of the questions they asked was, well, don't you want like people passionate about working with kids, working with kids? And before I could answer, I said, for example, this week, you know, I went in and Jason Wallace, I mean, you know, Jason was sitting in with the kids, doing some work with the kids. He was in one of the classrooms. And, and so a guy walks in and is like, so are you working with the kids today? And Jason's like, yeah. And he goes, so are you, you pretty pumped about that? And Jason was like, no. no I don't like, did I tell you all this already? I don't like working with kids. He's like, I, I, teenagers and up for me. I don't, I'm little kids. I don't, I don't like working with little kids. And, um, and they said, well, then why are you doing it? And he said, because, I mean, someone's got to do it. It needs to be done. When this is what God has given us. We've got to be taking care of the responsibility God's given us. And so the, the person who had done the research said, I'm guessing that's a problem for you. Like, you want passionate people to be working with the kids. And I said, no. Are you kidding? I consider that like a huge, great, mature expression of Christian maturity that Jason would say, no, I don't, I don't like doing this. But it's what God's called us to do, apparently. It's what he's placed on our plate. So we take care of it. I was like, now listen, if I could get that mindset in a person passionate about working with children, yes, that would be, if I can get, if I can get mature plus passionate, that's awesome. But if I have to choose between the desire to do it and the decision to do it, if I have to choose between them, I'll take the decision to do it every single time. That's Christian maturity. I mean, how much of being a, a well-married person is about doing what you know needs to be done not doing what you want to do. I mean, that's, does that not almost define marriage in some ways? Like there are times or, or parenting or any job that God calls us to. Of course, there are going to be aspects of it that we don't want to do. We have no joy in it. We don't find any, but we can learn. This is what God has called us to do and we'll let God take care of the emotional parts of it or the joy parts of it afterwards, which he often, by the way, as many of you know, does. You do what you're faithful to do and then God gives you some opportunity to be faithful in something that you're really passionate about. But that's, to me, so I think there's two different things. I just want to divide those out. One is the desire. For some of us, there is a fire caught up in our bones about discipling people. Like I would, if, if, if someone said, listen, Chris, we need you to start doing this and this and this and this, and we just, we just don't have time on your schedule for you to be discipling people, I would say I quit. Because that's, that's I mean, I have to do it. And so I'm going to fail at something else. So you might as well fire me and get somebody else to do that. Because that's something that I'm going to be doing. It's, it's one of the great passions I have in life, to disciple people. Um, and to be discipled. Like, I've just, I've enjoyed that. I've loved it. I've seen the experience of it. But that's not why I do it. Um, at the fundamental level, I do it because it's, it's something that needs to be done. And there are also all times, seasons in life when I don't have, I don't feel like doing it. I don't want to do it. Uh, so I would say, this, 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 and by the way, neither one of them is wrong. The desire to do that, the getting it, loving it, experiencing it is fantastic. If you get to have that, praise God. That's awesome. Um, but like with all, all human relationships, if you tend the garden, it will produce in season. But no relationship always produces. And so there's always going to be times when you don't want it. You don't want to do that. You don't want to feel that. You don't want to whatever. You don't want to put the work into it. That's why what I think we need is a core of men in a church who have made the decision to do this, sometimes because they love it, or along with the fact that they love it, and sometimes despite the fact that it scares the crap out of them, or despite the fact that it's the most awkward experience they can possibly have, that they would go, but I believe it's the right thing to do, so I'm going to choose to learn to do it. And 
Great, yes, we want the people to lead that charge, those who are committed to it and who are passionate about it. That's great. But if I have to choose every time, I'll take the godly man who has decided to do something rather than the person who is desires to do it. If I have to choose. If you're both, I need you to lead. If you're one or the other, if you're just a desire-based person, it's going to be, you need discipleship to grow out of that. If you can't do things that you don't desire doing, then you're, you're trapped in a millennial way of thinking no matter where you're, what era you're from. Um, but, and, and that's got, we have to grow out of that. No, no, no human relationship is ever going to survive that long. Um, but then the decision to say, you know what, I think this is the right thing, so I'm, I'm going to choose to do that. That's what I would call you to. Let the, let the emotions and the passion, all that kind of stuff, be the caboose. Let the will be the engine. That's what all i got to say about that. So, okay, so good. Yes, commitment. I'm going to write that down. Commitment and decision. And then three, desire. So a lack of desire, that can cost us. A lack of commitment will cost us. Good. All right, what else? Okay, tell me about that. Let's talk about that. Why insecurity? Yep. Interesting. Okay. Make sure I understood. One was, I have it all together and don't need it. Two was, I don't have enough together to give it. I don't have anything to give. Okay. And six was the next one, which is the sixth one. The third one, sorry, I've been looking at my list. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I'm a psychologist. You're a mathematician. Um, so the third one was a combination of the two or... Okay. Okay. It's more than just accountability. Accountability would be bad enough. Here's the thing, though. Vulnerability. Sorry. Yes, yes. Um, what's, what's been interesting to me over the years is doing counseling is, that, is how few men, I mean, let's, let's get this way. What, before, outside of marriage, what was the training that you had, formal or informal, about how to have an intimate relationship with somebody? Intimacy defined as they know what's going on inside of you, and you know what's going on inside. I'm not using it as a euphemism for sex. Y'all know me well enough to know I'll say sex for that. But that, that they know what's going on inside of you, and you know what's going on inside of them. How many of you feel like you got some training in that formally or informally? It, it, okay, maybe watching mom and dad. Okay, good. Any others? Okay, <laughs> which was mostly about hands off, buddy. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Stay away from my daughter. Gay okay, movies. There you go. There's a great source for education, right? Wow. Yeah, married with children. Good. Okay, good. Could you, you need to come take over. Like, you're ready. <laughs> if honestly, guys, we get pretty much nothing. Um, the first time we have to learn anything about intimacy is when they throw us as a roommate with some other guys in the dorm or in an apartment or something like that. So obviously I'm not using intimacy as a euphemism for sex. I mean that I know how somebody else thinks and I come to the realization that other people think and feel differently than I do. And that's, we, as children, we don't, no one teaches us as young men to do that. We're all supposed to think and feel pretty much the same about pretty much everything, right? The, the kid who 
who doesn't care that the team lost and the kid who cried that the team lost. We've got to conform the kid who cried that the team lost to not care about the, the team. Like we all need to be thinking and feeling about the same thing so that we don't have to be intimate. Listen, we don't have to talk. I know what you're thinking and feeling already, right? That's the, and so then we get into a relationship. That's how we develop the habit of communicating, of talking for, the, for the, nothing more than just to pass information, which is the habit men have. We talk to pass information. And then, we're develop, then we try to develop a relationship with somebody who talks to develop intimacy, um, which is a totally different motivation for talking. It has, there's no goal to talking. It's just to share. And, and that's incredibly difficult for us as men. We run into this like, a, I mean, most of us really painfully um, as we begin to realize that, that this, these women will just talk. And there's no, there's no punchline coming. There's no bit of information at the ending that I need. There's nothing coming along at any point that's like, it, 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 this is never going to have a point. It's, it's just, we're just talking. Why? So that we can talk, right? So why are we talking? Like, that's not, that's a, it's a different mindset. Women are trained from birth to, to engage at the intimacy level. Um, now, they're all more naturally probably wired for it, and we aren't. Our brains aren't even intimate with itself. Literally, we have so many less connections between the right and less right and left hemispheres of our brain than women do. Um, if y'all don't know that testosterone is a toxin. Um, so all babies, all fetuses are females. Um, until the boy fetus realizes that there's an XY chromosome thing. And so what the, its response to that realization is to flood the whole system with testosterone, which is a toxin. It kills brain cells by the millions and especially the ones connecting the two halves of the brain. So we have a hard time being intimate with ourselves and I mean, even, even thinking about things within our own heads is tough for us. Um, but that's a, so that we're dealing with that for as men. But the problem is, biblically speaking, I think the model is that we are to be known. We are to know, we're, especially in marriage. I mean, it says to, the apostle Peter tells us to live in consideration of our wives. What's, what's another word for consider? Think. Think about your wife. That really seems to be what Peter is saying. Don't forget there's a woman in the house with you. You've got, when you make decisions, think about the fact that it's not just you. That's very practical, pragmatic intimacy. Remember that she thinks and feels differently than you do. The same cause has a different effect for her. So this is, by the way, we've talked about it. Discipleship, marriage is a discipleship relationship. It's meant to be a friendship one. Two people discipling one another. Um, in particular, on how to love and serve each other. But also how to love and serve God better. But that's, that's part of that. Friendship is, is a similar thing. That you've got to know the other person well enough and be willing to be known. And as men, that scares us. Back to the, the point. It scares us to be known. Because what happens if someone knows us? Okay, they judge you? <laughs> yeah, they, just, they know you. Isn't that enough? <laughs> they have power over you. That's huge. They judge us. What else might come from that? Huh? Okay, they may expect or demand something. Yeah. Good. Good or bad. They may demand something of you because they know something good about you. Or they may dismiss you because they predict something bad about you as well. Good? What else? What might they realize about you or about us? 
okay, that we're weak. Good. As you know, one of the, one of the rules about men is that if they don't learn a skill by age 21, they will probably never learn it. Why is that? If you don't learn how to drive a stick shift by 21, you'll probably never learn it. Why? You're not going to ask. Why are you afraid to ask? Pride? You're going to look stupid. Yeah. We, we talked about, when I used to work at Pine Cove, we would talk about the fact you do a, men's, a, a father-son conference or a father-daughter conference. And you'd have these high school guys leading the conference and they're up in front singing songs and doing all these dance moves and these crazy things. And the kids are drawn to them like Pied Pipers. I mean, they're running around the room and you always had this 10 to 20, maybe up to 50% of the men who were there for that weekend standing in the back with their hands in their pockets or their arms crossed through the song. They look like an idiot. They don't know that. Why, are they, why aren't they singing? Why aren't they doing hand motions? What's this deep fear we have? We don't, we don't look stupid. We don't look foolish. And anything that might make us look stupid or foolish, we avoid at almost any cost. I think that's one of the main reasons we don't have time to disciple people. Because we're afraid of looking stupid. Did, did, any, did any of your tables come up with a, someone might ask a question, I don't know how to answer. Someone might bring a problem, I don't know what to deal with. Somebody might, yeah, that's, that's a big part of our issue here, isn't it? We don't feel competent. And if we don't feel competent by age 21, we're probably never going to do it. So, <laughs> now, um, by the way, it's one of my goals. Um, I realized that at some point, and it became one of my dis- disciplines to learn, try to learn something every year that I will look stupid doing. Um, it's, there's a huge list. It's not, it's not hard. Um, my first one, which when Paul McKenzie started uh, being a disciple of mine, was I started playing ultimate frisbee at Pine Cove on Fridays with the college students would fight, would go up against the high school seniors. And they, they all looked like Greek gods, both sides. Yes? I mean, oh my gosh, these, the high school, the, the college students, at that time, the college students took their shirt off. Eventually, at some point, they stopped that. But the college students would take their shirts off. These are guys who've been working at camp. They were already in perfect shape. And then I've been working at camp um, for, you know, five weeks. And then they strip their shirt and they're out there playing Frisbee. And they all, they all look like, and then me. I would go out there and play with them. And so I was, uh, you know, Stay Puft Marshmallow Man out there playing white, round, and I didn't I know how to play Frisbee. And so it was, it was I, I felt like an idiot pretty much the entire time. It was so refreshing for me week after week, but what blew me away was these college guys who later would say, and, and by the end, I wasn't terrible anymore. And at the end, they would actually like throw it to me with any hope it was going to do anything. <laughs> Until then, I was that guy like, we're ahead, throw it to Chris. Um, we don't want to embarrass the high schoolers anymore. Give the, give the Frisbee to Chris. Um, and so, uh, that was actually when Paul will tell you, that's what part of when he decided that, that he really respected that in me, that I was willing to step out and he knew why I was doing it. I was like, I'm out here to make a fool out of myself. I mean, I want to learn, I want to get better, but I know I'm (laughs) just going to mess the whole thing up. There's something, but, but so here's what's wild. Think about you. Now, can you think of someone who you've seen make a fool out of themselves because of something they believed in. If you have an example, let's hear it. You want to talk at your tables first to kind of warm up? Someone who, a man who you saw make a fool out of himself, or you know he made a fool out of himself because of something he believed in. Right or wrong. Right or wrong. Most politicians. (laughs) (laughs) 
sorry, they, they know they're making a fool out of themselves. That's the, tell me about it. <laughs> okay, so you just heard that, especially those of you who know Don. So do, do you immediately, did you just lose respect for him? <laughs> did, that, did that cost you respect for him, those of you who know him? The opposite? Okay, you might think of any other examples? Someone who's been willing to look foolish in order to show his wife love or affection or his kids love or affection or, or uh, the, minute, the minute I said it out loud, I thought to myself of um, Dick Hurst dressing like a Muslim woman to cross into the Kurdish lands to give money to the Kurdish rebels. That's looking, that's foolish. I mean, you, and Dick Hurst is not an attractive man. The idea of him being a woman not, would not be cool. <laughs> Dressed up as a Muslim woman in order to sneak through the border illegally to take supplies to the Kurds. That's foolish at a lot of different levels. Does that, does that cost you respect for him? You had to, you said... <laughs> I think what you'll discover if you, if you work at it is that when you think of examples of people who have been willing to make fools of themselves because of something they believed in, that actually you don't lose respect for them for that. In fact, those create the stories that you then find yourself telling years and years later. So it turns out that though we're really afraid of being foolish, we really respect people who are willing to look foolish. Um, for the sake of something that's right, that they believe is right. I mean, the ultimate foolish expression is almost always a missionary. Missionaries are always making fools out of themselves. It's ridiculous to leave the comforts of our Western world to go face mission work. Some of you have done that. I know Lance has done that. Others of you have probably done that. Like, that's just foolish. So that's, that's what the kids learned about this week was making fools out of yourself. Do you think of the Apostle Peter and you go, man, what a fool. He was a fool in a lot of ways. But do you respect, he stepped out in the water and then he sank. That's foolish. But do we respect that? He gets the only person who got to do that except for Jesus. Like, I would challenge our thinking to realize that our fear of looking foolish is what costs us from ever being legends. The reason no one's going to tell stories about us after we're dead is because we were afraid of looking foolish. I think most of the time that's the lead cause of it. We're afraid to stop and talk to somebody. We're, we're afraid to tell someone about Jesus. Why? Because we don't want to look foolish. We're afraid to invest in people's lives because it might be revealed that we're foolish. What, we, what I recommend we do is embrace it. That we embrace that, yes, we're probably going to feel foolish and we may even look foolish in some of these things. And I think we make that kind of a goal just to acknowledge that's going to be the case. That's, and that's, as long as you're being a fool for the right thing, that's worthwhile. So, yeah, I think that's a huge one. And I think it's one we can overcome. <laughs> he said that's why he went. Yeah. No, I'm teasing. Yeah. 
putting yourself out there. There's another, yeah, that's a good example. Trying to, trying to speak a language you don't speak. Yep. I think the other two, honestly, the I have it all together or I'm not enough are honestly at fun, foundational level are both pride. <clears throat> I think either it's pride. The, the first one's obviously pride. It's actually vain. It's called vanity or vainglorious pride that I, I don't need these type of relationships. I don't know that I've ever had anyone verbalize that to me, though. I mean, maybe we have, some of us have that in our head, but I don't know if I've ever had anyone willing to say, what's that? that? That like someone felt that way, like, honestly, I don't need any help. Wow. That someone would say that, that I just. Yeah, I was, I wasn't, I wouldn't be at all surprised that we think that. I would be surprised that there are many people willing to verbalize that, but, but absolutely, that's the, um. I mean, I think that's, that comes back to that. We, we hate somebody correcting us. We're so hypersensitive to any level of criticism. Um, I have so many stories of that in my own life. I don't even know where to start. I mean, that, 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 you know, Ginger, my wife has a habit of overselling need. I don't know if you guys ever run into this with your wives. Like she, so we were someplace, we're trying to decide, we had a map, three options for where to go. I was like, let's stop somewhere and ask one of them, which one of these is the right option? That's what I was planning on doing. And so she walked in and stopped somebody's like, excuse me, sir, we are completely and totally lost. Can you? And I was like jumping in like, no, 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 I'm not. I'm not. This is in Boston. Like I know any of these people at a gas station, I will ever see them again. Let me clarify. I'm not, I'm not lost. I just want to know which of these three is the right option. Whereas she sells it as we're completely and totally lost. I need to clarify that. Like, excuse me. It, so you'll know she may, I'm not. Um, that, so I get that. But I think the most telling example in my life ever is, and I'm, I'm not kidding about this. Like, I know this sounds crazy and delusional. And no, I know this is crazy and delusional. Was the first time that I scanned my, car, my credit card on one of the gas station machines. Some of you heard me say this before. And it, it says, type in your zip code. And I typed in my zip code. And it says, and then press enter. And I was like, yeah, thanks. I know to press enter. The fact that I get a little bit offended that it keeps doing it to me. Like every time I scan my card, it reminds me again. I'm like, listen, I freaking know now to press enter. Stop telling me to. I mean, obviously it's a computer program. I don't, it's not that I don't know this. This is so off that y'all aren't even identifying with this. Y'all are all like, wow, that's a problem. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> like there's a part of me that's going like, stop. Now it's like my goal to get it typed in and press enter before it tells me to press enter. Like there's something about this hypersensitivity we have to criticism that, you know, when, I, when, I, when someone says, hey, you know what? You ought to work on this. Everything in us goes into defense, hyper-defense mode. Whereas as Christians, it should be easy for us to say, yeah, sure, I'm, I'm jacked up. You may have nailed something that I wasn't aware of. Or, yeah, that's the one I know about. Or what, I mean, it should be so easy for us to accept criticism. And yet it's so hard for us to, to it's because we're acknowledging weakness. We're acknowledging need. All of this comes down to that. When Jesus sent out his disciples, you remember how he sent them out? So, no, he sent them out on this test run, 72 of them. I want you guys to go out on this test run, no money, no extra supplies, no walking stick, no cloak. I don't remember if that's all there, but that, he basically says everything. Leave everything behind and just go. What, how does he send them? <laughs> In twos. As if the point Jesus was trying to make was... In order to live the Christian life, in order to live the Christ disciple life, to be a member of my rabbinical school, 
You don't need money and you don't need shoes and you don't need staves and you don't need extra things and you don't need, here's what you need, one another. I think that was his whole point in sending them out in twos was to teach this point. This isn't, you can't do this on your own. Even with the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm still sending another person with you. To me, that's so huge for us that we, we don't want that. It's hard. It takes effort. They think differently than I do. They feel differently than I do. They don't see the world the way I do. I don't like that when that's exactly why we need them. Um, the pride of I have it all together is, a, is pride. It's just a problem. All of us. I confess it as quickly as any of the rest of you. Um, the second one, and by the way, pride is the easiest thing to confess in Christianity. If you, if you have a confession service, which I don't know that I'd ever be gutsy enough to try to pull off here. Maybe, maybe with guys we could do it someday, but a confession service, pride will be the thing that gets confessed more than anything else by far. One, because it probably should be. But, but why is it that we're so quick to confess pride? Yeah, exactly. Well, we certainly don't want to talk about, yeah, the others are embarrassing, right? Yeah, one, we know everybody's got this one, right? This one's safe. I speed sometimes. Yeah, that's, there's a tough one to admit, right? Okay, yes, we all do that, Chris. Do you have anything that matters, right? And also, pride is a little bit like when we can confess pride, we're admitting, like, if you were me, you would, you would probably struggle with pride too. You know, that's kind of what we're saying. Like, yeah, I'm sure you can all see why I struggle with pride, can't you? I mean, I, the I'm not enough one, is that about, is that just a base level insecurity? Is it, I don't know what I'm doing? Is it a, is it a competency thing? Is it an insecurity thing? Like, what, how would you guys answer that? What, what's that? <laughs> Maybe there's a false piety or false humility there. Okay. Right. Um, you know, and, and have the knowledge and, and like you said, not be made. Okay. So you're lacking some kind of knowledge? Okay. Lack of confidence. In, in what? Yeah. That's not something we, we're super comfortable with. It's not, it doesn't come naturally to us. But it also helps to remember there is a, there is a goal to it. And this is, this is one of the things that's tough that people don't think about. Um, so I don't know, you know, different employee situations, different job situations, but one of the reasons I wanted to be, uh, to lead a staff at a church was because I think there's certain things that are important. Like I want to be able to take this staff to go experience things together, just to experience things together, to go to a conference together, to go on a trip together, to, to do these type of things. And, and when someone, so when someone who's more, you know, time oriented or, or whatever than I am, They'll be like, anytime I've done this in the past, I bet you, if you've been on teams that have done this, you automatically are like, Man, there's, no, there's no time for this. And I, can't, I tank, can't take three days off from work. I can't take four days off from work to go on a trip or whatever, right? That to me is very similar to like if the Navy SEALs said, I don't have time to train. We got to get to action. We got to get to this. There's too many enemies in the world. We just got to go. All this training time is wasting our time. Because one of the things I tell the staff is, all this training that we do or all of this getting to know each other thing that we do or all this developing of rapport that we do, to me, is oil on a whetstone. And when the day comes when that steel is going to be dragged down that stone, it sure is going to be a lot nicer experience if there's oil on that whetstone 
versus if it's just scraping the steel against the, the diamond stone is going to be an awful experience. Um, out at, working out at Pine Cove and in other team places where I've worked, I will tell you, when the crisis hits, that's when you realize, oh, crap, we should have, we should have prepared for this in some way. Probably relationally, because that's where things are going to fall apart. It's going to be the relationships that bring it down if you didn't prepare for it. And the only way to prepare for it, you can't sit down and go, let's, okay, let's prepare for layoffs. Let's prepare for budget cuts. Let's prepare for, you can't do that. There's no such thing. What you do is <coughs> you get to know each other. You learn how to battle. You learn how to struggle. You learn how to conflict. And you learn how to encourage and how to support and how to stand by each other. And you learn how to do all those things. And then when things get really hard, the habits are there. The pattern is there. The, none of this stuff matters I, I mean, it is a regular part of my job, which I love, and I was doing it today, walking, you know, walking around the campus with a guy who's saying, I, you know, I'm, I'm, my job's gone, I've got a few more gigs that I'm working on, but when they run out, I don't know what's next. I have had that happen multiple times as a pastor now. In fact, it's a very regular experience. I'm not kidding to tell you that literally a guy had lost his job, and another guy came to me and said, Hey, how do we help him? How do we come alongside him as a church? Let me take the point in this. And so we all helped make that happen. And, and not six months later, that guy lost his job. Well, that's when the fact that he's invested in a body of believers and in other men, all of a sudden, that becomes pretty important. Now we're the ones, now we're, we're going to him to help him to do exactly the same thing he was doing for somebody else. But how do you prepare for that? Like, I want to make sure and establish a bunch of friendships so if I lose my job, I've got support. You can't do it that way. What you've got to do is establish a bunch of friendships, and it may be you, it may be somebody else, but when we face those difficulties, that's when we need that. It is, I think it is vital. It's what God is calling us to. It's why we're called a brotherhood. The brotherhood of believers is, is the brethren. When you see the old King James and stuff, that's, that's the most, that's what, that's what the apostle Paul called Christians, typically was the brethren. That was the New Testament word for us as one another. Um, it's, it's the word there, fraternity, a brotherhood who stand alongside each other. But the problem is we don't know each other well enough. We don't, we don't know how to come alongside each other. So that's part of what discipleship is. So let me, over the next few weeks, we're going to keep talking about these because I know there's more, but we're running out of time tonight. These are good ones to start with. Um, I want us to come up with a good list of these, and then I want us to spend the last few weeks just demolishing them one after the other, like just removing them as, as obstacles. What is it going to take for you personally to remove these obstacles? Which, is the, which are the main obstacles, and what do we've got to do philosophically or theologically, hearts, minds, soul, schedule, money, priorities, whatever that we need to do to demolish that? Um, one of the things I'll do is we will develop as a group before we're done the first five, first five meetings with this other guy. If you're the disciple maker or the disciple E, the disciple of the disciple maker, we're going to look at those. Now, we can't fill them in because that's, but we can start with, here's what you're going to accomplish. Here's a list of questions that would be good. And some of you guys have a lot of experience with this too. I want us to develop that together. I don't, I'm not coming with all the answers. I want us to develop that together so that everybody walks out of here going, you know what? I know what the first five conversations ought to look like, no matter which side of the table I'm on. After that, it probably won't be so hard. It's getting those first few done that I think stymies most of us.
Once we get in there and have those conversations, it's actually not so tough. And it may be that as men, that's part of why I walk. With, with meetings with men, I, I walk a lot of times. Because as men, we do better parallel rather than perpendicular. Um, you, you can ride in a car with a guy and get him to talk. But if you're sitting in a chair across from him, it's harder to get him to. But again, I don't know what that's about, if that's a cultural thing or not. But So it's, it's easy. If we just walk, one, I need to burn calories. But it's also a... It's a good way just to be shoulder to shoulder rather than face to face. And sometimes that allows guys to talk a little more easily. So um, whatever those are, uh, we're going to develop that. So next week, we'll come back and continue this conversation of what are the barriers. And then we will probably next week start moving into dismantling those barriers. Um, I don't apologize, but <clears throat> the truth is I want everyone to leave um, these, these six or seven weeks without an excuse. Now, you can just decide to defy or be disobedient or, or, or de- undisciplined or whatever, but I don't, I don't want there to be an actual excuse that you can even buy into for yourself. Um, and some of you are doing this already, and you need to be training others to do it. The idea here is, so one of the things that me help you with, no one is an expert on this, not actually. And by the way, I, I, I mean me. Like, I have experience with it. I can teach on it. Sitting down and starting those first conversations, going to somebody and saying, you know what, I think it'd be good for me to spend some time with you. That, that's never going to come easily to anyone. No, one, no one's an expert on it. The first few, because it's messy. There's no predictability to it. It's just the way it plays out. Um, Nick has a lot of experience with this. Do you consider yourself an expert? I don't know that anyone does. I mean, I think if you pulled Bill Bright, if he's still alive, and asked him, in many ways, kind of the father of modern discipleship, or uh, who's the founder of Navigators? Okay, so if you asked him, are you an expert? Now, maybe if he didn't know exactly what you're asking, he might say yes, and they probably should answer yes, but the truth is they might say, no, I mean, every time, it's, it's a whole new world every time. Discipleship is about two people coming alongside each other and their messy lives being messy together. There's not going to be a pattern. I've never found one. There's a few things you can say like, hey, these first five meetings we're going to cover these five topics for sure. But beyond that, so don't feel like when you meet with somebody, they're going to be going, oh my gosh, you, you stink at this. Like you have no idea what you're doing. It's okay. They don't either. They have no idea what they're doing. None of us do. And that's okay. That's part of it. So it is enough. I think that's part of why I love that verse, that it starts with the phrase, is it enough? Matthew 10, 25, what does it mean to be a disciple? And Jesus is going, listen, here, this will be enough. It is enough if the student becomes like their teacher. That's all. That's the measure of success. Are you becoming like your teacher? As Paul says, are you becoming like Christ? Uh, are you becoming like me in the ways that I'm like Christ? That's it. Isn't it interesting that there's not a big chat, there's not like 50 chapters in the Bible about disciple making formats, that kind of stuff? Instead, we have an example of Jesus wandering around with some guys, making them disciples. And by the way, it's messy, and it looks stupid. Sometimes Jesus looks foolish, and always they look foolish. So it's, it's okay. We're going we're gonna to bollocks this. It's all right. So any last-minute comments? <coughs> I want to tell you guys I'm pretty proud, if that's the right word. Um, I, I appreciate the faithfulness that you guys are coming back week after week. Like, I know it's easy, usually about this time, usually this is the Wednesday when you see the significant drop-off. I don't know how much of that is the CCC sale or whatever, but uh, 
I, that you have to be home watching the kids while your parents, wives are at the sale. But is, is it CCC? Yeah, thank you. Oh, yeah, exactly. I don't have anything anyway. Hey, by the way, uh, I, got, I correctly guessed who the uh, March Madness. It truly was a guess. I literally don't even know who it is. Like, North Carolina, is that who won? Like, that was bl- just a blind guess. And I, I, got, I actually got the last, like, f- six or eight teams all correct at all the wins. I have no idea. I know nothing about college basketball. Don't you guys hate me? Like, it's just blind luck. Like, I don't know. Let's go with this one and this one and... That just ruins it for everybody. I didn't bet any money on it, though, because so, usually, I'm, usually I'm out round one. Like, <laughs> round one's like, you can now earn zero more points through the rest of the bracket. But this stuff was really shocking. I didn't know until this week. Went back and looked. was like, hey, that's who I picked. Isn't that embarrassing? Can I change gears for just a yeah, and then we'll wrap up. <laughs> yeah, let's pray for them. And incidentally, we, there's a school that this church, First Baptist Church, largely South Campus Leadership, founded in the Dulos School in the uh, Dominican Republic. And in October, we want to take a team of, but you need to have some level of, of uh, construction skill. But they want to go down, because they built a school down there, and they're, re- they're building another section. And they're far enough along now where people like me going who can hold a hammer while Paul works is just not valuable. And so they need Paul, not me, to go. And uh, so if you're someone who's got construction experience, that kind of stuff, um, that, that might be something you're looking into, and I think probably in October. So, but we'll pray for Nick and uh, for them. Let, let's pray. Father, Lord, we want to lift up a brother to you who um, uh, is experiencing an adventure right now. Um, probably started with him looking kind of foolish, certainly risky. And uh, God, I, I, I pray that you would bless that, that their faithfulness in going and building a school is turning potentially into faithfulness to go toe-to-toe with a government that is in no way open, um, not only not open to the gospel, but not opening, not open to let people being open with the gospel. And so, Lord, I, I pray you would change that, that if nothing else, Vietnam would become, <coughs> South Vietnam would become a nation where people could freely express their faith. Um, that would be huge. So, Lord, um, I pray that, that your spirit will go ahead of them and give them um, good favor. And, Lord, I pray you would accomplish some mighty things there. Um, I do pray for Michael, too, at, at back um, helping lead the church with the pastor gone, and I pray you'd provide for all of them in this. God, I pray for us as men that you'll help us to um, make the decision to follow your example of being a disciple and making disciples, um, whether we like to or not. And then, Lord, I, I would love if you would set a fire in our bones to accomplish this, that this church would be a culture um, defined by discipleship. God, I pray that you would help that to be lived out in our lives with our spouses, with our kids, with our friends, with other people's kids, with other people's friends, Lord, that we would step in and um, lead them as you have led us, that we would be faithful to give to them what you've been faithful to give to us. And then in turn, they will be faithful to pass out along as well. Thank you for all this, Lord, in your son's name. Amen.